and welcome to Screen Cleaning here on BYU Radio. I'm Jeff Simpson. And I'm Cole Wissinger. And this show is all about shining a spotlight on all that is good in entertainment. We don't like to focus on the gossip or all the negative things that happen in Hollywood because you probably don't have to look very hard to find those bits of news. But we like to focus on the things that you have to look a little harder for. Isn't that right, Cole? It is. We try every week to come up with some kind of idea that the rest of the entertainment world isn't talking about. And when we talk about news and reviews of new movies, which we have later on in the show today, we look for the ones that are a little harder to find. One thing that has been in the news and that you don't have to look very hard for is the fact that there's going to be a remake of a comedy favorite of both Cole and myself, and that is Planes, Trains, and Automobile. We're running it back with Will Smith and Kevin Hart, apparently? Yeah, I can see that. I'm guessing, if I had to guess, you've got Will Smith as the Steve Martin character and Kevin Hart as the John Candy character. Because if there's one actor working today that looks the most like John Candy... It is Kevin Hart. That's not it. It's he, he can be lovable, right? Whereas Will Smith has done all that dramatic work, and so he can take himself a little too seriously as well. He's the straight well. man in the right. comedy duo. Right. So that got us thinking, what if we could take some of those older movies and recast them with today's actors? Or even cooler, what if we took today's biggest blockbuster hits, the movies of 2020 and, and this era— but cast them with actors from the golden age or from the 80s and 90s and so on. And what we discovered as we started to flesh out these lists a little more, we dis- we discovered that there was so much there that it couldn't be contained in one show, Cole. So this is recasting part one on Screen Cleaning. Tune in for part two next week. Today, we are focusing more on today's movies cast with older actors. Now, we've got to start with the movie that you got most excited about, Cole, a movie that's very near and dear to your heart, and that is, of the Avengers movies, my favorite. We're talking about 2012's Avengers. Yes. Because, I mean, really, we only have so much time in a show. Endgame had a couple more characters that we just couldn't figure out how to recast, but that core group of Avengers in the first one, I think, fits that criteria of having character-driven, like, very iconic characters that you can pick out and say, yes, this person from the olden days could fit into that role. And as I understand it, Cole, you and I approached this list from a very different uh, time, right? Yes, I think so, because I'm placing my event, my new Avengers new old Avengers in the (laughs) 90s from like the mid 90s, like 95, 96 in that first one through the culmination in 1999 for the Avengers, which would not only make 99 an even cooler year in movies, but also give you a time frame to think when these actors were in those times. Because a lot of these actors are still working today. But no, take yourself back, put yourself in the 90s and think about what the Avengers could be. And I'm going to be asking you to put yourself in the golden age of Hollywood. A little bit earlier than Going me. <laughs> back to the 60s, 50s, and even 40s, Cole, to recast these roles. So who are we looking at here? Well, yeah, let's tackle it. So the stars of the Avengers were Captain America, Iron Man, Thor. Then you have Hulk, Hawkeye, and Black Widow. And then, of course, there was the bad guy in the movie, Loki, and the one that brought them all together, Nick Fury. Mm. Starting oh, this is with Captain America. This is where you need 
to highlight the Avengers. He's the leader of the Avengers. He's the golden boy. And so the the pretty blonde guy that I would cast, following a similar career trajectory as Chris Evans, he is a Chris that has also been in a previous superhero film, I want Chris O'Donnell as my Captain America. <laughs> really? Because imagine okay. this. It's the mid-90s. They had just come out with Batman Forever, and it wasn't oh, as yeah. well-received. But before what? Batman For and Robin— For teenage boys, it was very well-received. In like Jeff that. Simpson's house, Batman Forever was amazing. <laughs> but before Batman and Robin really sunk the franchise in waiting for Christopher Nolan to bring it back out— Val Kilmer left, but what if Chris O'Donnell also left? I'm saving the man's career because you look at what he was doing before then and how Batman and Robin kind of ruined him as well as Batman for the next 10 years. I want to save the guy because I think there was something there. I think he plays a great superhero and he would get a chance in my Avengers as Captain America. Okay, I can see it. I can see it. I'm going for somebody that is also, he's got that clean cut look. Um, he's very much revered in Hollywood, and he just recently passed away at the ripe old age of 103. And I'm thinking I'm going to go for Mr. Spartacus himself, Kirk Douglas, as Captain America. I think people would rally behind him and uh, would be willing to fight alongside Kirk Douglas. Captain America may be the leader of the Avengers and the All-American Boy, but it's Iron Man that started the MCU, and you have to get that one right if you're going to launch a franchise. And there was no bigger action star. There's no one that had charisma and quips the way Robert Downey Jr. has given us in the mid-90s as Will Smith. That oh, yeah. That is my Iron Man. I could see that for sure. He certainly has a good track record, and I think the Hollywood execs could bank on him bringing in the audience members. And picture this. By 99, his blockbuster career was kind of over. Wild Wild West ruined him as the big-budget action star, and he started focusing more on, like, the the personal stories and, like, Seven Pounds, Pursuit of Happiness. We got serious Will Smith after that. Yeah. I want to prolong prime Will Smith. I want to keep getting blockbuster after blockbuster, and if Avengers is coming out, we could maybe forget about Wild Wild West. Maybe even didn't even have time to do Wild Wild West. It was a lot of investment trying to write a rap for that. Instead, he writes a rap for the Avengers, and that becomes what we know Will Smith for. I've erased Wild Wild West from my vocabulary, Cole. As you should. Uh, I'm going to go with somebody who back in the day may have been considered a uh, Hollywood bad boy, right? Certainly. That's an Iron Man thing. Yeah, certainly a method actor. So maybe this actor would make himself an iron suit. I don't know. But I see Marlon Brando as being a good foe to Kirk Douglas's Captain America. And uh, I think that's a great pairing right there. For Thor, you need someone with long blonde hair and a godly physique. And no one accomplished that in the 90s quite like Brad Pitt. If if Will Smith was the blockbuster huh. darling and was everyone's fan favorite, Brad Pitt was just coming into his own as one of the serious actors. And so to kind of bring it home in this trio that... that you know, centralizes the Avengers. I need someone that is a true Oscar worthy guy that can also pull off a little bit more acting. He's got to be the fish out of water. He's got to be the one from Asgard that comes in and sees the world different. I think Brad Pitt can accomplish that. Okay. I can see that for sure. 
Uh, I'm going with somebody who's not really an actor, but he certainly had his experiences on camera and in front of the camera. And it's somebody that uh, his uh, physique was very important to him to the point where he gave up desserts. And I don't think that's something I could ever do, Cole. Never. And it's a man by the name of Jack LaLanne. You've heard of Jack (laughs) LaLanne, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think he'd make a great Thor. And you wouldn't have to use as much CGI because he was just physically fit. Also, it was the 50s and 60s and there wasn't CGI. See, I'm thinking around, I'm thinking along the same lines for my Hulk. See, for Bruce Banner, we can do whatever we want. Get some kind of small nerdy scientist, a Matthew Broderick type. I don't care about Bruce Banner. The Hulk, though... In the mid-90s, we're working with very limited CGI, maybe composite, but you got to start with a large frame. Wrestlers have made the transition to Hollywood time and time and again, from Andre the Giant in the 80s through <laughs> the highest-paid actor of the past couple years, The Rock, today. Yeah. And if there's one one wrestler that I think should have gotten his chance, it is Triple H, because... Little Bruce Banner is just like the good guy, but the the Jekyll to the Hyde to his Jekyll, I guess, and the one that is angry is the Hulk. And so we need the greatest heel of the 1990s. We we don't want a face. We don't want a good guy as the Hulk. We need the bad guy. And so the Undertaker was probably like the best bad guy for WWF. But he was more like his big trench coat and his hat. The one that had the physique, the one that really could be the Hulk painted green without CGI. You know, the way Lou Ferrigno was in the TV show. Sure. It was Triple H. I'm actually, it's funny you say that's how you came to that decision because I'm actually going more the Mark Ruffalo, Ed Norton route, you know, where I'm not going with somebody that's super chiseled and that can sometimes be construed as somebody that is quieter or more soft-spoken. Maybe in the 60s we have a claymation Hulk. You don't have to actually (laughs) cast the guy. (laughs) So I went with somebody who you would never expect him to be capable of tearing up a room or, in this case, murdering a hotel guest. So I'm thinking... Anthony Perkins, who played Norman Bates so well in 1960s Psycho, would make a great Hulk because, again, he's soft-spoken, but uh, he's also capable of of some carnage, too, I think. He's got that, too. So I I like that. You went more the actor route because you wouldn't like him when he's angry. You'd you'd believe that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, now we're getting into the grounded portion of the Avengers, right? Hawkeye's the one without powers. He's got to be the one that makes a couple quips, but ultimately reminds you that everyday guys that try, that have some training, can kick it with these giant, you know, otherworldly superheroes. And I wanted Brendan Fraser, right? He's he's the guy that was funny, and I want him in my Avengers eventually, right? Mummy comes out in 1999. But if I'm thinking about a whole MCU, a whole cinematic universe, I want to save him. I want him to, like, helm his own franchise later on. So for my just Hawkeye showing up here and there to bring in some, some grounded acting to these large blockbuster scenes, it's Ethan Hawke. A quiet, firm presence mm. yeah. in my Avengers. Yeah, I can see that. I can also see uh, somebody like Steve McQueen as Hawkeye. Somebody who's got those rugged looks, who is not afraid to, you know, roll up his sleeves and get dirty. And somebody who, you know, started out with a couple of smaller roles in his career, but then very quickly shot to stardom 
And I kind of feel like that kind of describes Jeremy Renner, too, right? And more than just Jeremy Renner, Hawkeye's role in The Avengers, how it wasn't really fleshed out very well. He's barely seen in the first Thor movie. Right. And then his part starts to become more substantial, just like Steve McQueen. That's awesome. So now we need Hawkeye's buddy, the other superhero without the superpowers, the spy-turned-hero Black Widow. And for this, I'm looking for another redhead in the 90s that has a serious acting background before she got into blockbuster movies. How about someone like Heather Graham, was in Boogie Nights and Swingers before in 1999, as a matter of fact, being in Austin Powers, the spy who shagged me. I think she would make a great addition to this Avengers team. I'm going with somebody who essentially played a Black Widow of sorts in a movie called Double Indemnity, and it's Barbara Stanwyck. In that movie, she's able to lure in this insurance salesman into the scheme to murder her husband so that she can get the insurance money. And, uh, yeah, she she doesn't love him the way that he loves her, Aww. let's just say. That's that's the Black Widow. For Loki, the bad guy of this movie, you need someone to paint opposite of Brad Pitt's Thor for me. And so I went with a dark-haired but complicated creature, someone who in his real-life acting has proven he's no stranger to Marvel movies. But in the 90s, Jeff Goldblum, I think, would play a great <laughs> silver-tongued Loki. It's, it's a different kind of suave that he has, but I think it works. And he actually appeared with Loki in Thor... Uh, uh, Ragnarok. Exactly. Yes, your favorite of the Thor movies. Yeah, right. Um, I went with another Alfred Hitchcock villain because he's very suave and charming. And even though he's doing this terrible thing like plotting to kill his wife in Dial M for Murder, I think Ray Milland would be a great choice for Loki because he has that devilish grin. And that that one makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Finally, Nick Fury, the one that brings the Avengers together. Uh, remember, in the 1990s in the comics, Nick Fury was actually a white guy, and there was a TV movie starring David Hasselhoff as Nick Fury. Now, what? for my big-budget Avengers, I want someone with a little bit more gravitas, but it's got to be someone that's older. You know, I mean, Sam Jackson was in his 50s or 60s when he got cast in this role, but someone that's been established in Hollywood. How about Warren Beatty bringing the Avengers mm. together? Interesting. That's somebody that... Uh... I briefly considered for that role, but I ultimately gave it to somebody who has a, quite a bit of experience gathering up a ragtag team of heroes to save the day, just like Lee Marvin did in The Dirty Dozen. Yep, that's a good choice. Yeah, I think uh, he would make an amazing Nick Fury and have would be able to spout out those really loud and uh, rousing speeches just like Nick Fury does. Excellent. So that is our uh, golden age of Hollywood and really my golden age, the 90s, uh, versions of The Avengers. When we come back here on Screen Cleaning, we'll be exploring a couple other recent movies and how we would have recast them if they were in another time. That's coming up next on Screen Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. That 
is the great rock song from, I think, the, the superior of the two Bill and Ted's films, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. And we'll find out in about one week if it's going to be the superiorist of the three soon-to-be Bill and Ted movies. That's probably a word Bill and Ted would use, Cole. Thanks. Um, so the reason we're taking a look at Bill and Ted's here in this hour, not only because it's coming out in theaters very soon, but also it's another one of the films that we hope to recast. So what we did in the uh, first part of the program was to take the Avengers cast and cast them, cast the characters, the main set of characters with older actors from, in Cole's case, the 90s. And for my from my case, the 40s, 50s, and 60s, the golden age of Hollywood, some might say, right? Um, and this is kind of a nod back to an older show that we did here on Screen Cleaning. And uh, you can actually find it on our podcast. If you just Google Screen Cleaning Podcast, you should be able to look up all of our past shows, download them on the go, and listen to them anywhere you're at. And that show in question was called... What, Cole? Different directors. So instead of recasting, we put them in the hands of different, you know, filmmakers. Now we're looking specifically at the casts of these movies and what if they had been done differently. Now, my original Avengers of the 1990s won't work for recasting Bill and Ted because Bill and Ted happened in the 80s and the (laughs) 90s. And so I would actually be bringing it forward a little bit. So I had to look even further back into Hollywood. And for a couple of... You know, stoner dropouts that Bill and Ted kind of are. I don't think that premise totally works for the earlier days, right? That's more of an 80s idea. And so I went in a different direction. I looked more to TV because in the 50s and 60s, TV was a little bit bigger than movies at times. And some of those stars shone brighter. And so my Bill and Ted will be Dick Van Dyke and Adam West. Really? Yes. Okay. Dick Van Dyke as? Well, that would require me to know which one is which. Keanu Reeves, <laughs> is that Theodore Logan? Yes. Okay. And Bill S. Preston would be Adam West. Okay. I I can see it, and I absolutely love it, Cole, I've got to say. And I think uh, you'll appreciate, if nothing else, the, the two that I chose. I, I will admit that this was probably me at my laziest in my casting because I kind of just went with an already tried and true comedy duo uh, that actually made seven films together back in the day. Okay. And it would always be road to blank, insert destination here, right? And that would be Bob Hope and Bing Crosby. Bing Crosby being cast as Ted Theodore Logan because he's really just playing himself, which is really all that Bing Crosby did back in the day, right? Yeah, I guess. So, uh, and then obviously that leaves Bob Hope to play Bill S. Preston. Seemed like a natural fit. And, you know, I mean, we could say the same thing about a dumb and dumber, you know? Yeah, uh, I realized as I was thinking back, like, what comedy duos were doing and... 
a lot of the iconic duos of like the 30s for like even into the 20s were a straight man and a weirdo, right? Like you have Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello. That kind of thing is not what Bill and Ted were doing. Bill and Ted, they were both dumb. And like you were saying, one's dumb and one's even dumber. Like right. Dumb yeah. and Dumber did it in the 90s, too. Uh, so I had to get two kind of comedic actors that are willing to make fun of themselves. Can't you picture Dick Van Dyke's facial expressions going back and meeting all of these you know, historical figures for the first time. You know, I'm sure he could play a surfer dude just about as well as he could play somebody with a Cockney accent in Mary Poppins. Which is, well, (laughs) it's so good. (laughs) All right, Cole. So the next movie we want to talk about is, I don't know that it's old enough to be considered a, quote, classic, but only time will tell, right? But it's certainly one that is... It lends itself really well to uh, recasting with somebody from the old days, And right? it has very specifically one very iconic and classic character. We're talking about Knives Out, originally starring Daniel Craig as Benoit Blanc, but now starring someone completely different. Yes. And really, he is the standout character. We could spend time talking about any number of the family members, but uh, really, when you think of Knives Out, you think of Daniel Craig. So that's the one we're going to recast. And again, I went with somebody that is in the old days of Hollywood, and I immediately went to Peter Sellers because... Peter Sellers is somebody that back in the day you would expect to appear in this role. I mean, he was in all the Pink Panther movies as Inspector Clouseau, right? Yes. So this bumbling detective. And Benoit Blanc is actually a pretty good detective, or at least he's very observant, we'll say, right? Um, But the reason I did not ultimately go with Peter Sellers is because you would expect this from Peter Sellers. You would not... uh, Expect Daniel Craig to play against type like everybody was super surprised when he was in that movie Logan Lucky and he played this hillbilly that was using a funny accent. Because we know him as James Bond. And uh, he's doing the same thing here where he's using a funny accent, partly because I think it's much easier for British people to pull off a southern accent than it is for them to just pull off like a regular North American, let's say California accent, right? Well, oh, I mean, you're a Northern from America accent, right? The middle America, they, they call it like Nebraska or Iowa. Like that's right. where you, that's yeah. the accentless accent. Right. So I went with somebody who maybe as an actor took himself pretty seriously, and this would be a bit of a stretch, or he definitely would be playing against type, and that would be Mr. Lawrence of Arabia himself, Peter O'Toole. Oh, man. Yes. Uh, And I bet he would win that Oscar that he never won throughout his whole career. I think he still holds the record for being nominated the most and never winning. I think he would finally win the the, the Oscar that he never won for Knives Out as Benoit Blanc. Jeff is swinging for the fences, but here's the thing. If Knives Out was actually made in, say, the 1970s or early 80s, it would be directed and star Mel Brooks. 
Uh, absolutely. <laughs> and not only would he play Benoit Blanc, he would also play the Christopher Plummer older fella as well in just a ton of makeup, which, as you were talking about Peter Sellers, I think we could say Peter Sellers would do both of those characters oh, for sure. as well, really. Yeah, yeah. But when I thought of Mel Brooks, I wanted to cast just a couple of the other like characters that show up, because if it's a Mel Brooks movie, you gotta have Madeline Kahn in there as well. But now you're turning this into a spoof, which I guess Knives Out is kind of a spoof of oh, the mystery genre. If you can't watch Tony Collette's performance and tell me that it's not a, it's not something that Madeline Kahn could knock out of the ballpark. But as I was looking on the side of my face, breathe, breathing, breath, breath. Yeah. The I, whole I concept it. of this show was find a character driven, you know, small cast where everyone is iconic. And I can't believe we didn't pick Clue. As soon as my mind went to Madeline Kahn in this role, I realized we should have been recasting Clue, an older movie, in modern day. And of course, Scarlett Johansson would be Miss Scarlett. And then Kate McKinnon, I think I would pick as Miss Peacock. And because no one can do what Madeline Kahn did as Mrs. White, I want a very pale and gaunt, but funny in a different kind of way. Like Harnish, Jim Jarmusch, The Dead Don't Die, Tilda Swinton as my Mrs. White. So okay. just that that's that's the little sidebar that always is included. But thinking about Madeline Kahn being in a version of Knives Out made me realize we really missed the boat on not picking Clue as one of our old movies to bring modern. But I don't think so, Cole, because Hollywood is doing it for us because there is a Clue remake in the works. Of course there with is. With Jason Bateman directing and Ryan, uh, not Ryan Gosling, Ryan Reynolds, Reynolds starring yeah. in it. I maybe he'll play the Tim Curry character. That is the star. Although I don't see him in that role. Yeah, it's Ryan Reynolds. Hmm. He'll just do Ryan Reynolds things. Okay. It'll be different. Yeah, for sure. Okay, Cole, this is the one that I was least excited for, and it was the one that I had the hardest time casting. But then when I zeroed in on who should play these two roles... I think I was the most excited for it, even though I've only seen it once and I haven't seen any of the any of the other films in this franchise. And I think it's the best casting that I've ever done on this episode. So what if the <laughs> Fast and the Furious happened mm -hmm. in the golden age of Hollywood? But Cole, I know that you are such a huge fan of this franchise that uh, I'm going to defer to you, or at least I'm going to let you go first and hear who you picked. It's because we also want to save the best for last, and Jeff is <laughs> really excited about I'm confident. This. Oh, here's the thing. In 2001, this was a movie that became a blockbuster franchise with racing cars, and they were street racing to steal some DVD players, and that plot doesn't work if we're in the 1950s, because they wouldn't know what a DVD player was, or frankly like a fast car for that sure, matter. Sure, sure. And so instead of doing something that's 50z, I want to do a period piece, Fast and Furious. Mm. Say the greatest races of of all time, a western. I want to see a couple people on horseback going and robbing a train and then having an undercover sheriff join the gang and try to take them apart from the inside. And if you're going to oh. do a western in the 1950s, John Wayne is your Vin Diesel that's the captain of his family, and Paul Newman would be my undercover um, Keanu Reeves in Point Break, but it's Paul Walker <laughs> in uh, in Fast and Furious, because Paul Walker, frankly, and Paul Newman are, are just splitting image, just a pretty boy blonde, and I think that would be my 1950s Fast and Furious. It is funny, because on the way over here, I thought, isn't Fast and Furious just Point Break? 
And it, it definitely basically is. is. Yeah. So um, I again, I wouldn't call this lazy, but it's it's perfect casting. I would say in in the Dom character, I would go with somebody that is known very well known for an old racing movie who uh, many would say is good looking. James Dean. Yes. And ironically, it's Paul Walker that died in real life in a car accident. And it's it's the Vin Diesel character or the Vin, Vin Diesel. Well, you get what I'm trying to say. It's uh, James Dean. Yes. Who actually died in real life. So um, for my Brian O'Connor, I also wanted somebody that was, you know, could be construed as good looking but has some acting chops and it wouldn't be out of the ordinary for him to play a police officer going after James Dean. And so I chose Paul Newman. No. Paul Newman. We independently of each other came up with Paul Newman. I, I want even, to remind before everybody the of show that. started, I wanted because you were so excited about this, I wanted to run this by you to just see because at, at first my Avengers were in the nineties. And then when I realized we were both going for the fifties for this one, I wanted to say, like, hey Jeff, you know, just in case we pick the same guy. Do you wanna like <laughs> ch- But we kept it a secret until this moment. Yes. That is so exciting. I approve of your choice. (laughs) Well, Cole, I've had such a wonderful time recasting these movies, so much so that, as you said at the beginning of the show, we're going to have a part two coming up next week on Screen Cleaning. But for that show, instead of recasting new movies with old actors, we are going to recast old movies with new actors. And this might ruffle some feathers, Cole, I'm going to predict already, because uh, these are movies that many people would say are so perfect how Dare you try to even have a conversation about recasting these characters? We're going to have that conversation. We're going to do it anyway. (laughs) Yes, and I'm so looking forward to that. But uh, we're going to take a quick break right now. And when we return, we are going to get around to reviewing some of those movies that are finally starting to make their ways back into movie theaters or at the very least onto your streaming services. That's up next here on Screen Cleaning. Yes, that is a musical intro that we haven't heard for a while, and it used to accompany one of our favorite guests here on the show, Rod Gustafson. Well, he's still one of our favorite guests. It's just that it used to be the theme that always accompanied him. Thank you for the clarification, Cole. He is here in the studio with us today. We're keeping our distance, and Rod, it's great to have you back on the show. Whenever I hear that theme, it makes me hungry for bacon-wrapped sausages. I feel really? like well, I feel like it should be at some swanky, you know, party somewhere. Is that like, your idea it's, of it's my swanky party? Music. Is the bacon wrapped? When I'm at something? the jazz club, I go for those bacon wrapped sausages for sure. <laughs> Usually, the swanky foods are not foods that I would touch with a ten foot pole. Remember that wonderful Canadian band who sang, "If I had a million dollars, I'd have bacon wrapped sausages." <laughs> so there, there we are. go. All right. All right. Thank you for the clarification. <laughs> All right, and thank you for the the education uh, and helping us cleanse our palate <laughs> a little bit. Um, Rod, we're excited to have you here, not just because we enjoy your company, but also you've seen a movie over this past week that neither Cole nor I have seen. I wasn't even aware that it's on 
Disney Plus. Yeah, it, it is on Disney Plus. And what was so amazing about this movie, it had a payoff for me at the end that I'll talk about in a minute. But first of all, this is a movie called The One and Only Ivan. And uh, I, when I started this up, I really didn't know what to expect. And it was immediately a, a, a talking animal movie. And so, you know, all right, there was Babe but I can't really think of any more talking animal movies that I really, really loved. Oh, because so, Doolittle came out earlier this year, but mm, you cool. put in the caveat that, that we really, I really loved. That he really loved. Yes, gotcha. yes. Sorry. Yeah. No, okay. that one didn't do it for me. Anyhow, uh, it, about, so Sam Rockwell does the voice of this gorilla, and the gorilla's name is Ivan. He's a silverback gorilla, and uh, he has been captured as a little tiny baby gorilla. He was poached, and he was brought to a shopping mall where he is part of this weird sort of an animal act that goes on in this mall. And uh, so this is basically where he lives. And the circus owner, if you will, played by Brian Cranston, has this gorilla, and he's got an elephant, he's got a rabbit, and they just do different tricks. And the people who come to the mall, they pay a little bit of money to come and see this performance. And so Ivan is a is a very laid back gorilla. He's not an angry gorilla, and uh, he is just he's kind of got this hankering that he wants to see the great outdoors, and he's getting a little tired of the same gig over and over. And part of the gig is is every time they introduce Ivan, he's got to pound his chest and holler and do all these typical gorilla things, and he feels you know he's being that's that's just stereotyping. It's he's, a whole dog and pony yeah, show. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So eventually. What happens is a little baby elephant joins the group, and uh, and I don't want to give away too much here, but the whole group wants to see the great outdoors. They want to leave, blah, blah, blah. The movie turns into, a, first of all, it's a lot better than I expected it was going to be. Huh. It actually gets emotional, and it turns into a, a definitely more a kind of an animal rights movie about keeping animals in cages and this type of thing. I remember in the 1980s, um, I was living in Edmonton, Alberta, and the, they were building the world's biggest shopping mall to compete with the Mall of America in Minnesota. And they had all these animals in cages. And even in the 1980s, you know, I remember thinking, oh, wow, they got a tiger in a cage. That's really, you know, poor animal. And so that's kind of where this goes to. And it takes place in that 1960s era. So now here's the payoff for me. Okay. I joked when the movie started and and I was watching it with a couple of people and and I joked and said, oh yeah, this is going to be based on a true story. It's a talking animal movie. Ha ha ha. It is based on a true story. There really was an (laughs) Ivan the Gorilla. And he was at a little shopping center in Tacoma, Washington. This is what they reveal at the end of the movie. And then my little 40-watt light bulb goes on. My aunt and uncle, when I was little, lived in Tacoma. And we were living in Vancouver, British Columbia. And we go down there and see my aunt and uncle. And we went to this weird shopping center where they had animals. And I'm sitting there thinking, 1964, yeah, everybody's doing the math, 1965, and that era is when we were traveling back and forth <laughs> oh, to wow. Tacoma. I've seen Ivan. 
Isn't that funny that you were that you were doubting that it was based on a true story, <laughs> and then at the end they made a monkey out of you? Ron. Oh Ooh. gosh! Also, I go I go bananas over jokes like come that. On, come on, it's based on a true story that's also based on a book written by K. Yes. A. Applegate, one of the authors of my favorite children's series, Animorphs, also about a bunch of animals, but much more fictionalized, I mm-hmm. think, than a mm-hmm. gorilla at a shopping mall. Is this something that my six-year-old and eight-year-old and my three-year-old are going to enjoy? Uh, three-year-old, no. Six-year-old, maybe. Eight-year-old, I think so. I oh. think so. Uh, and it is, there are, there is a big sad moment in the middle of this movie, just a warning. And, uh, you know, so that, be there with your kids when you watch it. This isn't a good one to put on while you go do something else. Watch it with your kids. And guess what? I think you'll enjoy it as well. And uh, and that's that's what really surprised me. It, it really just had some it had some lovely moments to it. Uh, the voice acting is incredible. And, you know, if I was an animal wrangler in Hollywood today, I'd be sweating because these animals— The CGI animals oh, look good. The CGI animals right. are amazing. The one and only Ivan, reviewed by Rod Gustafson, who comes around to give us movie reviews. We're going to have more re- movie reviews in the coming weeks because movies are starting to open up again. It's very normal for us to be talking about what's new on streaming. That's what we've been doing all quarantine. But theaters are opening. Unhinged is out today, which I got to see. It's a pretty R-rated thriller, but at least it's in theaters. And I got to see uh, another movie a little bit early that should also be in theaters. Right. It is called Words on Bathroom Walls. And uh, Cole, I I know that uh, you were actually offered a link to watch Unhinged online, but you were just so excited to go to a movie theater and have that experience. Drove up to Salt Lake, ate some popcorn, was back in the theater. Yeah, so we did see words on bathroom walls at home, and uh, it's interesting because going into this, I knew nothing about this film, Cole. Knew nothing about it, and at first I thought I was watching a teen version of Venom because the protagonist, Adam, who is played, I would call it admirably, by Charlie Plummer. He regularly hears this menacing voice in his head that also sounds like the menacing voice that Tom Hardy hears in the movie Venom. And he also sees people that aren't there, right? So before you think that, oh, maybe he was given this virus that imbued him with these superhuman powers, that's not where this movie is going it turns out that he actually has schizophrenia. And, you know, he he keeps seeing these, these same three characters in his head throughout the movie. And he believes that other people see him as somebody else's problem to deal with. He keeps shuffling from one school to another. He keeps changing from one drug to another. And he finally comes across a drug that seems like it's actually helping him out. He is he is a a chef in training. He wants more than anything to have his own restaurant and he also something that changes that might be helping him out. He meets this girl at his new school that uh, he hires to tutor him at first, but it turns out that they might have some things in common and their their personalities play off of each other well. Played by Taylor Russell, who you might have recognized from Escape Room. Oh, that's what she's from. Oh, she looked familiar. I couldn't place it. Thank you, Cole. Now, it's interesting that I I mentioned that their characters have these personalities that are supposed to play off of each other really well. 
But one of the things that I kept coming back to, or at least the big takeaway for me at the end of the movie, was I just didn't buy the chemistry that these two characters were supposed to have. I thought individually their performances were quite good, and there are some fun performances also throughout the movie, most notably Andy Garcia as the uh, the priest that gives Charlie Plummer's character some sage advice. And when quoting scripture doesn't work, he uses other methods. And uh, yeah, I wish that the movie didn't seem so uneven. I feel like it keeps bouncing from one subject or one focus to the next, which I guess might not be too out of the ordinary with a character that has schizophrenia, and right? representative of the disease. I think the hallucinations were the highlight of performances that I saw. Anna Sophia Robb as kind of his really? lighter and crazy side. Uh, Devin Bostic was his just horny teenage boy side. And, and all of these just voices constantly bombarding him and the way they represented it. So at the heart of this movie, I did not see Venom. I saw... A Fault in Our Stars or Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl. Sure, it's just another yeah. high school romance movie where one of the characters has a, a disease. In this case, it's not fatally cancer. It's schizophrenia. But the way that they represented the schizophrenia on screen, I think, was just so imaginative. And Charlie Plummer got to work with it so well, bouncing between the audience getting to see what he sees and then us not and being in the place of his parents, including a, a stepfather played by Walton Goggins. I who, love Walton Goggins. Big twist wasn't the bad guy in this movie. What? <laughs> um, I, I think I thought it was really good for that kind of a movie. Again, I'm not it's not my favorite of the year, but I thought that Charlie Plummer and Taylor Russell um, at the heart of it, at this little high school romance, were fantastic. A couple of comments on what you just said, Cole. I totally agree about, you know, this This might be seen as like a cookie cutter uh, teen romance with fill in the blank uh debilitation, right? And I think you and I have joked about this in the past. Whenever a new teen romance comes out, it's like, okay, what's the disease they have in this one, right? Because some, (laughs) like, they can't go outside. Some, they can't go outside. Five feet apart. They they can only be out at dark, you know. Yeah, five feet apart, which we probably ought to review that (laughs) Should have been called six feet apart with this pandemic. Yeah. And then the other thing is I certainly agree that I, I can appreciate the way that they portrayed schizophrenia in this movie as as far as what he sees and how the audience sees it. I just didn't feel like the characters that were inside his head were all that memorable, which is interesting because he lives with these characters each and every day. And I thought they were kind of forgettable. I disagree. I uh, liked it. Okay. So I, I've just got to ask the parent question. So if my teen, my 16-year-old goes to see this movie, what do you think is the message that they that they take away from it? How does it handle teen mental illness. Is there something that's a takeaway for young audiences on this? So the mental illness side is, I think, treated gracefully because as what can sometimes spiral when you're inside of your own mind, it also touches a little bit on suicide, which is a serious epidemic among young children today. And I think it does it tastefully. Now, Charlie Plummer gets to have laughs with his hallucinations All throughout the, the movie. Poking it is a fun, fun at goodwill hunting. Yeah, and, it's mm-hmm. it's a goofy movie. It has like the interaction, but he he right from the get go is working with a therapist. He's 
doing he's which you, know, you never got, see by the way which i thought was an interesting choice the you audience never... is the therapist okay that he's kind uh, of talking to it yeah it's, it's cool. but they take all of the serious things that you need to do to combat mental illness and make him and just bake him into the core of the movie it does not say that and especially when you incorporate the faith side too andy garcia doesn't just say you know pray the schizophrenia away he says right. like take your pills and go to therapy yeah. and good. then incorporate god as well that's good i think those are important points to bring out so that you know for parents you know what is my kid going to you know learn and see in this movie that i may not want to go see now cole <laughs> there's another movie that both you and i saw both at home and uh it's not a teen romance but it's kind of a teen documentary of sorts right certainly about teens it's a documentary called boys state about this real thing that happens apparently in texas where they gather a thousand 17 year old boys into the same place and try to simulate government for a week <laughs> so you know there's <laughs> going to be drama right off the bat right cole apparently it, it reminded me of lord of the flies and a little <laughs> bit of the stanford prison experiment it was not my favorite two hours that i spent this this week, but it was a decent documentary, I guess. Okay, a decent documentary. That's all you have to say about it, Cole. That's interesting because I I put my blood, sweat, and tears into this one, Cole. I didn't start this one till about eleven thirty at night. I was not going to get a good night's sleep because I was sleeping on the couch, not because of anything I did wrong, and I <laughs> wasn't being punished by my wife, um, but. I did not get a good night's sleep that night. And so I was willing to sacrifice and put in the effort to get through this movie. And not just for the sake of the show, I had thought, okay, maybe I'll watch 30 minutes of it. 30 minutes went by. Okay, maybe I'll watch an hour of it and then I'll go to bed. I could not stop watching this movie, Cole. I thought it was absolutely riveting and captivating. It focuses on these various boys that are gunning for governor or they're gunning for the state representative. And there's a reason that these documentarians focused on the boys at the heart of this film, because they are absolutely entertaining to watch. And I watched this movie, Cole, probably with a little bit of a different lens than you did, having been in an episode of a documentary series myself on Disney+. Plus. This movie itself is on Apple TV+, Plus, not Disney+. Plus. And uh, so I was able to see, okay, you can tell that's why they decided to focus on this character, because he basically passed the audition, and he was the most entertaining one that they saw, right? And so... I saw this movie a little differently than you did. So I even even all of those documentary tricks aside, you know, where maybe the documentary uh, producer said, OK, now we want you to say this or now we're going to tweak the editing a little bit so that it looks like these two are at each other's throats. Right. They can be really clever in any doc in any documentary. That's what they do. Right. They play with the editing so that they can kind of try to tweak your emotion or uh, tweak your emotions, but also get you to have an opinion opinion one way or and the other. This right? is why I disliked the movie so much, because when you look at comments from people that were actually in it, they talk about the guy that actually ended up winning the big race, the governor in their little mock simulation. How everyone did love him and he came off really well. But in the movie, you're made to think, you know, he's not one of the four that you focus on. And so he's just like this come out of nowhere and one because of political mangling. The whole 
political process in real life is terrible and convoluted. And so to make a documentary about 17-year-old boys mocking like mocking in the making fun of kind of way and also mocking in the trying to simulate kind of way, this also convoluted process is really, really... It, it was just it was terrible for me to watch because they knew that they were making decisions that were purposefully lying and deceitful and what they think politics is. But when mm. we simulate it that way among kids, then eventually you grow up and that's what it becomes. Politics are too real. And they were talking about way too real of issues for 17 year old boys to be tackling in such a flippant and like this is what our policy throwing around kind of way is when they're actually issues that affect real people's lives that government officials are trying to figure out in the best way possible. You know, it's interesting, though, Cole, because I th- I think one of the boys summed it up so perfectly. The one that was kind of just a dude running for governor, right, who knew his stuff and was certainly driven but he just kind of said, that's that's politics, I think. But it doesn't have you know? to be, and it shouldn't <laughs> be. Yeah. yeah, The I think at the end was the most telling and stupid part of the whole movie because, yes, that's what these people think. And so why are we putting these boys through this process? Like, you make a documentary to, like, shine a light on something, but I think the whole fundamental organization of it was flawed. And I don't want to see a documentary of it because at some point you're glorifying the fact that this is what people think politic is. And the more we do that, the more it just is that and it shouldn't be. But for me, it actually restored my faith a little bit. No. They were awful. Awful little boys. Listen, listen. In certain people, the boy that ultimately did not win the governorship, um, he – I had faith in that boy. And I thought, this is a kid to watch out for. This is a kid that didn't want to play those dirty little tricks that the other side played to great effect. This is a boy that is passionate and who genuinely cares about the people that, you know, that he was pretending to have his stewardship over, yeah. right? I thought there are people out there in this world of politics that genuinely care, that don't want to play those dirty tricks, that unfortunately don't always win because they don't want to play those dirty tricks. The documentary told me that it's literally one in a thousand and even they can't win in the end. I don't take that home with a... With very well. I don't like that. Well, Cole, uh, you know, just like that movie, there has to be a winner and a loser of this argument. But I am willing to concede to you if that helps, if that spares some hurt feelings and mud raking. Fortunately, my victory speech is ready. I would like to thank all of the people that helped make this happen. <laughs> Boy State. I think it's one to watch. It's on Apple TV+. Plus. It's PG-13. Uh, really, there's not much language in the entire movie until the very end when the character that you would expect it from blurts out a couple of F-bombs. Yeah, considering it's following around 17-year-olds, they could have included a lot more swearing than they did. So Creative wa- editing. So in my speech, my concession speech, I want to thank the editors of Boy State for <laughs> nice. not sinking to that level for the most part. This is a movie that kind of came out of nowhere, wasn't on our radar, but every so often on Screen Cleaning, we do like to talk about movies that we had been meaning to watch. Huh. I've I've been been meaning meaning to to watch watch that. Last week we talked about high school movies and we set up a couple movies that Jeff and I had been meaning to watch. For me, I had never seen 
the the classic clueless before, and so I did mm-hmm. you this said, week. You said classic. Does that mean that you think it is a classic, Cole? It's a classic because people have considered it a classic. I did not particularly enjoy <gasps> clueless. Are you saying this just because maybe to, it's a little dated? It is very dated, but it's also very geographical. What's the dated way to say it's you you had to be there kind of thing you had to be in the 90s in california i think to really get how that's what i saw appropriate this movie Uh, that's when and where i saw it cole i was in rural middle america in the 2000s and hearing all of these people say as if and just these little pampered prissy like mansion dwelling idiotic beautiful blonde people i i didn't it wasn't a movie for me. Like, it's pretty good, and it points out a lot of those things. But at the end of the romance, at the heart of it, between uh, Alicia Silverstone and Paul Rudd, is more of an adult-feeling romance, like the way they montage through the moments before in the movie where she realizes, oh, he was there for me the whole time. Like, it feels like a couple adults having that realization, not a couple high schoolers. And the fact that they're step-siblings does not help the romance, in my opinion. It's good, but it's not the best high school movie ever. They're not step-siblings. They're ex-step-siblings, Cole. It does not make it better. (laughs) Okay. Well, you do know that it was based on Emma, right? So Mm -hmm. it kind of had to follow a certain storyline. You can change whatever you want in adaptations. (laughs) Hmm. And they do change quite a bit. I love... Wallace Shawn as her teacher that is, if you don't know who Wallace Shawn is, he's Rex in the Toy Story movies and he's also Inconceivable inconceivable guy. Wallace Shawn was the best part of that movie. Oh, absolutely. But now, this is 1995. I want to throw another question to you guys. Are they getting better at casting high school movies? Because I remember watching this movie in 95 and thinking, these people don't look anything like people in high school. I double-checked. Most of the people in in this movie were like at max 20 or so. I grew really? up, I watched a little bit Gosh. of Dawson's Creek as well, and those were like 30-year-olds pretending to be high schoolers. Yeah. The high school movies we talked about last week, and Clueless included, actually, like, it set a pretty hard max at like 2021 for their cat. I mean, Donald Faison is in this movie. He was still playing a high schooler in 2001 when Remember the <laughs> Titans came out, yeah. right? So at least he was six years younger in this one. Yeah, and Paul Rudd, you know, he looks exactly... The same. Yeah, Paul Rudd could still play a high schooler for all we know. <laughs> 30 years later, right? He has not aged a day. And uh, I, I'm going to go home and probably watch that movie with my wife this weekend. We love I it so much. I had been meaning to watch Clueless. Jeff, you had one that you were meaning to watch too, right? Yeah, I had been meaning to watch PCU since my siblings uh, grew up watching it and I was not really old enough to see it. And I guess I'm, I wasn't meant to see it, Cole, because I searched the Internet, scoured the Internet, and I could not find it anywhere. Not at my library, not on any streaming service. The only place I could find it was on eBay and Amazon from anywhere from 30 to $60 on DVD. Ooh, With like a two-week nice. delivery time that wasn't right. going to let you. So it, I guess I wasn't meant to watch this movie. So... I took a look at another movie that I was meaning to watch, and to do so, I had to do a little panning for good. There's good in them dire hills. I turned to a streaming service, one that I didn't have to look too hard for. It's called Netflix. 
And have heard of it. This was a PG-13 high school movie, which was right in the pocket of what we were looking for for these types of movies that we've been meaning to watch. And it was actually another documentary about, not about the political process, but about a tried and true formula that you see in high school and college movies, the football movie. But in this case, the football documentary. So this followed this uh, this high school in Tennessee, Manassas High School, that would not be on anybody's radar prior to this movie because they just were not a good team. They had not won a playoff game in the entire history of this high school. And this high school was over 100 years old. And so this volunteer coach wanted to change all that. And it was an all, if I mean, according to the documentary anyway, it was an all Afri- African-American school or at least an all African-American high school football team. And this is a coach that cared deeply about these young men. He not only volunteered his time on the field, but off the field. It wasn't uncommon for him to get in his car and go pick up a student that was ditching school that day or ditching practice or that stormed out of practice because they got in a fight with another team member. And it's it is kind of a rocky sort of a movie where you're really rooting for the underdog because this volunteer coach just takes this awful horrible, never won a game, or they didn't win the last year, and he's going to really turn that ship around. And boy, oh boy, does he does so. He does so in a great way. And uh, it's PG-13. Check it out on Netflix. He does swear kind of a lot. And at one point he talks about how, I had I was swearing at you guys so much the other day that I had to go home and get on my knees and ask for forgiveness. So uh, hmm. he's such a great character. And you really root for these kids who you know, because of circumstances, but also because of some of the poor choices that they've made up to that point. Um, You're really rooting for them to turn their lives around. And a few of them, I think, really do. You know, you get that little epilogue to see how things panned out for these characters. And thankfully, it turned out pretty well for a few of them, at least. Undefeated. Can I bring one other high school nugget in the gold pan? You betcha. I was so happy to see Stand and Deliver on Netflix. <gasps> this movie has been it's so on Netflix? hard. Yes, and it's been so hard to get. And I think, I know this gets a little geeky, I think it is even a newly remastered from the film print. This movie was made originally for television. I think it might have been made for PBS back in the 1980s. True story of Jamie Escalante, played by Edward James Olmos, and what he did for these students teaching calculus to them for years in the L.A. Unified school uh, district, and it was just an amazing, amazing movie. Last week, we had Screen Cleaning University sophomore year, the first edition of Screen Cleaning University, the only unanimous selection uh, that that everyone agreed upon that should be nominated the the best high school movie it was Stand and Deliver ah very it's, good it's interesting because I think I think you're right in that it it started out on TV but it must have gotten a theatrical release because Edward James Olmos was nominated for best actor mm-hmm. at the Academy Awards I know and I was wondering that too I bumped into that a couple of years ago and I thought it must have played in L A or New York or something just to qualify but it really is looked upon as being a TV movie and it's One of those films, I went looking for it about seven or eight years ago, and it was one of those movies like what you were just describing. You could only get it on eBay. Some guy's got an old DVD for 80 bucks. So to see it on Netflix, I was thrilled. This is a great movie to start the school year off with your kids. 
Well, Rod, we want to thank you for being here with us on Screen Cleaning today. It's always a pleasure to have you here. Thanks again. Thank you. I love being here with you guys. Good and seeing you again. I'm sure we'll call you back as movies start pouring back in, or maybe dripping back dripping. in is a better way to describe it, into movie theaters. We're hopeful uh, to be able to talk about Bill and Ted Face the Music on next week's show. New Mutants is out next week, too. It's going <gasps> to be in theaters. I swear. That's the one I was think- I forgot about. It's finally going to be there. I'm so excited. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Screen Cleaning. We've had a wonderful time recasting films with old actors and new actors. And uh, boy, oh boy, too bad we'll never get to see those films. But uh, if only we had a time machine, right, Cole? Let's talk with Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves. Maybe they can help us figure it out. <laughs> We'll be back next week. We're here each and every week on BYU Radio to give you the very best in entertainment. I'm Jeff Simpson. And I'm Cole Wessinger. And we'll see you next time.